last chapter of Hosea, Hosea 14. Barb asked me this morning if we were finished with Hosea, Hosea today, and I said no. Early this morning, one sermon became two. So we'll be looking uh, at chapter 14 this week and next, and, and really the text, if you will, for the morning is the fourth verse of uh, the 14th chapter, and then we get to do the fir tree, the, the evergreen tree. We get to do that next week, so I encourage you to come back. Hosea 14, beginning at verse 1. Return, O Israel, to the Lord your God. For you have stumbled because of your iniquity. Take words with you and return to the Lord and say to him, Take away all iniquity, accept what is good, and we will pay with bulls the vows of our lips. Assyria shall not save us. We will not ride on horses, and we will say no more, our God, to the work of our hands. In you the orphan finds mercy. I will heal their apostasy. I will love them freely. For my anger has turned from them. I will be like the dew to Israel. He shall blossom like the lily. And he shall take root like the trees of Lebanon. His shoots shall spread out. His beauty shall be like the olive. And his fragrance like Lebanon. They shall return and dwell beneath my shadow. They shall flourish like the grain. They shall blossom like the vine. Their fame shall be like the wine of Lebanon. O Ephraim, what have I to do with idols? It is I who answer and look after you. I am like an evergreen cypress. From me comes your fruit. Whoever is wise... Let him understand these things. Whoever is discerning, let him know them. For the ways of the Lord are right, and the upright walk in them. But transgressors stumble in them. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Lord, please grant us your help as we look at your word. Please bless us as we seek to understand it, and please take your word and Cause it to live and drill it into our hearts, we pray. Lord Jesus, we ask that you would be exalted here, that you would be set before our eyes, that we would cling to you, run to you, embrace you, be saved by you. Lord Jesus, there is hope no place else. So Lord, come and be in our midst, we ask in your name. Amen. You may be seated. You all uh, know the Robert Louis Stevenson story, the strange case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. You all know that story. You remember that story. Maybe you've read it. Maybe you've seen one of the movie adaptations of the story. There was one in 1931. Uh, starring Frederick March. There was one in 1941. There uh, may have been another one since then. I'm, I'm not sure. I did learn that this last week. 
Uh, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, you know what the story is about. It's one person, but, but this person is two people, right? That's what the psychologists uh, today call a multiple personality disorder. I, I understand that, don't you? Right? Archbishop William Temple said, I am not a man, I am a civil war. Right? I understand multiple personality disorder or dissociative identity disorder. You've got technical names for these things. And you know what they do with people like Mr. Jekyll Hyde? They put them in hospitals. Right? And they give them massive amounts of medication to try to get them sane, if you will. Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. By day, he was an upstanding citizen of the land, and at night, he became this misanthropic, brutal, vicious murderer. Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. Now, if you've been doing your homework, I've been asking you to read Hosea and to keep reading Hosea and to keep reading it and keep reading it. If you've been doing that, and if you haven't, I want to encourage you to do it. If you read Hosea closely, you read it carefully, if you read it slowly, if you journal with it, if you interact with it, if you don't just read it for information, you don't just read it to get the task done, but if you really read it and try to get into it, you know, try to insert yourself into the story, Frankly, it becomes very frustrating. It becomes very frustrating because there are tensions that emerge in this book. I said last week it's a love story, and it is a love story. I said if you can think of Amos as the story of God, the roaring lion, you can think of Hosea as the story of God, the relentless lover. It's a love story. The love story is played out in a parable in Hosea's life with Gomer, his adulterous wife, who marries him and then who leaves him, and he goes and marries her again, buys her back, takes her back, and all of that is a picture of the relentless love of God for Israel. And we said there are two things that come out of this story, this incredible love which God has for Israel. And, and I, I tried myself to understand and tried to help us all understand last week that the love which God has for Israel is not different from the love which he has within himself. What a stunning thing. The love of the Father for the Son and of the Son for the Father and the love which the Holy Spirit delights to see between the Father and the Son and of which he himself is a participant. The love which the Holy Spirit has for the Father and the Son. This love which God knows within himself, which does differentiate Christianity from Islam, right? Somebody pointed this out recently. Think about this. Recognize the difference. When the God of Islam loves, it's an act. It's something he does. When the God of Christianity loves, it is something that he is. And there is a world of difference between the two. 
And what I tried to suggest is that this love of God which he has within himself and for himself among the members of the Godhead does not change when it moves out from him in the direction of people like us. It doesn't change. It's the same love. Jesus prays this way in his high priestly prayer. I wish I had thought to mention this last week. So I'll mention it this week. John 17. Read the high priestly prayer of Jesus and hear Jesus near the end of that prayer praying this and, and it's interesting that Jesus is praying this for you. He's praying this for you, about you, for you. Remember, he starts his prayer praying for the disciples. But then he gets to the end of his prayer and he says, I'm not just praying for them. I'm praying for those who will believe in you through them. And that's you and me, folks. That's us, down across the centuries of the life of the church. And here's what Jesus is praying. John 17, 22. The glory you have given me, I have given them, that they may be one even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and that you have loved them even as you've loved me. It's not a different love. And then John seventeen twenty six. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. Okay, I know this is from last week's sermon, but it sure is good to be reminded of it again this week. And I just want to say to you, I know there are a thousand voices in your head and outside your head. It may be your conscience. It may be your parents. It may be your children, your children who say, yeah, yeah, I get the Jekyll Hyde thing. That's my dad. That's my mom. One person in one place and another person in another. Here's what I want to say to you. There may be a thousand voices screaming in your head. But there is one voice that you need to listen to, and it is the voice of Jesus who says to you, the Father loves you with the same love with which he loves me. It's not a different love. It is the same love. And that was the first thing. And then the second thing is the idolatry of Israel. Here is this everlasting love of God, this relentless love of God. And Israel enjoys all the benefits of that love and yet rejects the Lord who is so lavish in his love. Chapter 10, verse 1 of Hosea. Israel. Israel is a beautiful vine that yields fruit. But the more his fruit increased, the more altars he built. As his country improved, he improved his pillars. What's that mean? Well, here's what it means. The more Israel came to enjoy the blessing of God, the more the blessing of God became her God. That's what that means. The more Israel enjoyed the... But write it down. It's worth quoting. You don't have to cite me, but it's worth quoting. The more Israel enjoyed the blessing of God, the more the blessing of God became her God. Her altars, her own religion, her religious practices, her self-righteousness, her pillars are symbols of strength and stability. 
She arrogated to herself, took credit to herself for all of the blessing of God. And so the blessing of God became an idol and she turned away from the Lord. And so here is this love of God and this idolatry. And that's the first tension that emerges. God loves his bride, but the bride spurns his love for other loves. And that's what's portrayed. It's what's played out in Hosea's life and the parable that he lives with an adulterous wife. But there's a second tension. It's it's a powerful tension. It's an even greater tension, if you will, and it's a tension within God himself. And this is where, if if you haven't been reading Hosea, let me please encourage you to do it. Find a chunk of time. You can read it through a couple of times in less than 45 minutes. Everybody's got 45 minutes. Just like everybody's got five bucks to go to McDonald's, everybody's got 45 minutes. And here's the tension that emerges within God himself. It's a function of his response to his people. It's a function of his reaction to his people. It's a Jekyll Hyde kind of response, or at least it appears to be. On the one hand, Hosea's prophecy is filled with the threat of judgment and wrath. It's throughout the book. It's not like it's just in chapter 1 and 2 and 3 and then you get to the good news in 4 through 14 or 1 through 7 and then 8 through 14. It's all throughout the thing. It's like strands woven together into a tapestry. It's there. The threat of judgment and wrath of destruction. And then there's this other response. There's the theme of restoration, of compassion and love of mercy and kindness, of forgiveness. But if you read this thing and you read it reflectively and thoughtfully, you see these two things and you ask, you have to ask yourself, okay, I understand you live on the other side of the cross. I hope you understand the significance of the cross. But try to project yourself back onto the other side of the cross. Try to live in Hosea's day and try to hear the words of the prophet. Try to listen to him. And you have to come away from Hosea saying, Hosea, which is it going to be? Which is it going to be, Hosea? Should I worry about getting up tomorrow morning? Or is it going to be safe for me to get up tomorrow morning? Which is it going to be? I feel whipsawed, jerked between these polar opposites. I think I've said this to you before. There's such a great, I did, I know I did, bear with me. There's such a great tendency among us to try to find a middle ground. You know, to try to soften the reality of the holiness and righteousness and justice of God and and to try to moderate it somehow. You know what you do when you try to moderate that, when you try to find some mid-ground? You moderate what's at the other end as well. Hosea won't let us do that. He won't let us do it. You hear both of these sounds throughout this prophecy. Which is it going to be? Look at... Hosea 1, verses 4 through 9. I'm just going to give you examples. I'm kind of going to do your work for you, okay? But I want you to read the book this week. Hosea 1, 
Verse 4, the Lord said to him, Call his name Jezreel, for in just a little while I will punish the house of Jehu for the blood of Jezreel, and I will put an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel. On that day I will break the bow of Israel in the valley of Jezreel. You remember that Jezreel means the Lord planted. The Lord planted. If you go read Isaiah 5, the first few verses, there's described there what God did for Israel. When God took a tender vine, a tender shoot, and delivered her from her bondage in Egypt and brought her up into the promised land and planted her so that she would become a fruitful vine. The Lord planted. Well, the imagery, the imagery of a fruitful garden where the fruit of the vine flows as a symbol of God's blessing, now becomes a metaphor of destruction. The valley is no longer a place of blessing. It's a place of curse. It's no longer a place where the wine flows. It's a place where the blood flows. Where God will march across Jezreel. And he will punish. And blood rather than wine will flow. Verse 6, she conceived again and bore a daughter. And the Lord said to him, call her name, no mercy, for I will have no more mercy on the house of Israel to forgive them at all. No footnote, no asterisk. Go down to the bottom and check for the exceptions. I will have no mercy at all. Verse 8, when she had weaned no mercy, she conceived and bore a son. And the Lord said, call his name, not my people, for you are not my people and I am not your God. That sounds pretty kind of final, doesn't it? And then verse 10, yet the number of the children of Israel shall be like the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered. And in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people, it shall be said to them, children of the living God. Way beyond just being a people, now they're being called children. And the children of Judah and the children of Israel shall be gathered together and they shall appoint for themselves one head and they shall go up from the land for great, meaning blessed will be the day of Jezreel. So you see, now the metaphor is back to a metaphor of blessing. You get it? Do you hear it? Which is it going to be, O oh Lord? Which is it going to be? Look at Hosea 2. Verses 5 to 13. I'll just read these. You can hear the, you can hear the tension. For their mother has played the whore. She who conceived them has acted shamefully. For she said, I will go after my lovers who give me my bread and my water, my wool and my flax, my oil and my drink. Therefore, I will hedge up her way with thorns and I will build a wall, a siege wall against her. It's a military term, a siege wall. I will build a wall against her so that she cannot find her paths. She shall pursue her lovers, but not overtake them. And she shall seek them, but shall not find them. And she shall say, I will go and return to my first husband, for it was better for me then than now. But she did not know that it was I who gave her the grain, the wine, the oil, and who lavished on her silver and gold, which they used for Baal. And so I will take back my grain. 
I will take back my wine. I will take away my wool and my flax, which were to cover her nakedness. And I will uncover her lewdness in the sight of her lovers, and no one shall rescue her out of my hand. And I will put an end to all her mirth, to her feasts, her new moons, her Sabbaths, her appointed feasts. I will lay waste her vines and her fig trees, of which she said, These are my wages, which my lovers have given me. Sounds pretty final. But then Hosea 2, verses 16 and following. And in that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband, and no longer will you call me my Baal. For I will remove the names of the Baals from her mouth, and they shall be remembered by name no more. And I will make for them a covenant on that day with the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, and the creeping things of the ground. And I will abolish the bow, the sword, all of the implements of warfare I will abolish, and I will abolish war from the land, and I will make you lie down in safety, and I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and justice and steadfast love and in mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness, and you shall know the Lord. Which will it be? Which will it be? What's it going to be? Do you ever, I mean, think pastorally about this. Do you ever get up on Monday morning and think, am I safe or am I in trouble? You know, do you ever think, does your conscience ever say that to you? Am I safe or am I in trouble? You know, Barb and I were out in Wyoming for 10 days and saw the handiwork of God. I made it, you know, kind of, you weren't offended by it, but I made a reference to the Tetons and how I can't wait for the new heaven and new earth and take a tap and just pop that tap in the side of the biggest mountain there and just the sweetest, tastiest lager that anybody, you know, it's just like the wine is going to drip from everything. That's what the Bible says. We had a fellow with us that week, very, very very thoughtful, wonderful pastor. He's very honest with us and said, you know, before I became a Christian, I thought this is what life was all about. Do the least amount of wrong and the most amount of right over the longest period of time and you'll be okay. Least amount of wrong, most amount of right over the longest period of time and you'll be okay. And then I became a Christian. And it was still. What's it mean to live the Christian life? Least amount of wrong, best amount of right, greatest amount of right over the longest period of time, and God will really like you. I said to somebody before the service, I hope the gospel is big enough for me. This person said, I hope so too. And I said, yeah, because I'm the most righteous person here, and if it isn't good enough for me, then the rest of you are really toast. <laughs> isn't that how we think of the Christian life? You know, there's some of us who are just a little bit higher up the ladder, a little bit closer. You know, we've done the least amount of wrong, the most amount of right over the longest period of time, and so we got badges. 
and we get to wear black pulpit gowns with crosses on the chest. You ever get up on Monday morning and ask yourself, Lord, what's it going to be today? Am I safe or am I in trouble? You, you read Hosea and you've got to ask yourself the question, which is it going to be? And, you know, it's not just Hosea. As I thought about this this week, and particularly this morning, I thought, you know, I'm not sure there's another book in the Bible that better describes this tension, this apparent tension that seems to exist in God. This necessity of being righteous, this necessity of being just, this necessity of dealing with what is wrong. You remember from some weeks ago in the sermons from, from, from Amos, I said, as Christians, we want to be thankful that there's somebody at home in the universe who really does care about what is right and what is wrong and who is not confused about the two. That's a good thing. But it's also a terrifying thing. There is a disposition in God. It's a function of who he is as God that he must, he must deal with every injustice. He cannot. It would be an injustice in God if God were not concerned for every injustice. You understand that? God cannot look down from heaven, as I said, and say boys will be boys and girls will be girls and simply sweep stuff under the rug. It doesn't go away. We try to sweep it under the rug. God does not. Every injustice, every wrong, he will deal with. But there is also this disposition in God. This disposition to be compassionate, to be gracious, to be merciful. Which is it going to be? You know, it's not just, it's just I think Hosea is the most clear description of this tension that exists in God. But if you go back to Exodus 34... You see the same thing, and frankly, the whole of the Old Testament is an exposition of this tension. If you think about it, the whole of the Old Testament is an exposition of this tension. Exodus 34, verses 6 and 7. Here's the setting. Moses has been on the mountain. He's received the law. Before going up on the mountain, God has brought Israel to himself, brought her out of her hard bondage in Israel, brought her to himself that he might marry her, that he might make her his bride. And Moses comes down from the mountain with the marriage contract. That's what he has. That's what the ten... Commandments, the elaboration of the law, that's what it is. It's the marriage contract. We're now husband and wife. And this is how we are going to live together. I am going to be this and you are going to be this. And it's going to be a wonderful marriage. And your blessing is going to be all over the place. And you'll be so blessed that the nations are going to look at you and they're going to say, surely God is in their midst. Moses comes down from the mountain and before the people even get the marriage contract, they've committed spiritual adultery with another husband, the gods of the Egyptians. And so Moses comes down from the mountain and in the presence of all Israel at the bottom of the mountain, he takes those two tablets of stone and you remember what he does with them? He smashes them to the ground. What is he saying? Marriage is off. Before it's even started, before there's even a honeymoon, the marriage is off. 
And then Moses, being Jesus, intercedes before the Father, reminds the Father of His promises to the children. And so the covenant is renewed, and as Moses goes back up into the mountain, God says, make two new tablets, and I'm going to write on them just like I had written on the other ones. And Moses, here's what I want you to keep before the people. I want you to keep before the people my name. I want you to keep before the people my name. Verses 6 and 7. The Lord. The Lord. Yahweh. The Lord. I want you to keep my name before the people. The Lord. And what does that name mean? God gives a definition to it. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. Ah, hallelujah. But who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generations? Lord, which is it going to be? Which is it going to be? I've got to go down and tell them your name. Which is it going to be? Is it going to be slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin, exhibiting mercy and compassion? Or is it going to be who will by no means clear the guilty? Lord, we're all guilty. I understand the latter. How can it be the former? Which is it going to be? And all throughout the rest of the Old Testament, that basic idea is unpacked and becomes larger and larger and larger so that by the time of Hosea, God is speaking so clearly. Here are these two distinct impulses. And so the people of Israel have to cry out, what's it going to be? Is the answer to the question judgment and wrath? Or is the answer to the question mercy and compassion? And you know the answer, don't you? The answer is yes. The answer is yes. Is it going to be judgment and wrath? Or... Is it going to be mercy and compassion? Wrong question. Lord, am I getting this right? Is this coming into focus for me? Lord, is it going to be judgment and wrath? And mercy and compassion? And you know that the answer is yes. If such a horrible tendency 
such a horrible tendency to devalue the significance of the cross. So having preached the sermon, let me take you to the text, as I promised I would. Verse 4, I will heal their apostasy. I will love them freely. For my anger has turned from them. My anger hasn't gone away. My righteousness has not gone away. My holiness has not gone away. My anger has not gone away. I have turned my anger from them. If you're caught up in the drama of this thing, after everything Hosea has said across these 13 and a half chapters, and you come to this fourth verse, you have to ask the question. You've got to scream out, if it turned away from us, where did it go? What was it turned to? And you've got to wait several centuries for the answer to that question. But that is the pregnant pause. That is the pregnant pause between the end of Malachi and the announcement of the coming of Jesus and the inauguration of his kingdom and the fact that blessing comes through judgment and not apart from it. That's the pregnant pause. From Malachi to Matthew. If it's turned away from us. Upon what or upon whom has it been turned? And you know that the answer is at the cross. Where does the anger go? Where does the righteous wrath go? Where does this outward expression of God's right and just revulsion in the presence of true moral evil, where does it go? It goes to the cross. Matthew 27, verses 46 and 47. Jesus upon the cross cries out, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. My God, my God. Why? Have you forsaken me? You know, you hear people say, you, I, maybe I've said it, maybe I've shared this observation with you. Maybe you've said it. You hear people say, you hear preachers say it. That when Jesus uttered those words, the Father turned away from the Son and left him alone to die. The fact of the matter is, when Jesus uttered those words, Jesus, the Father, turned away from Israel. The Father turned away from his people and turned upon his son. And his son became the prostitute. His son became the idolater. His son became the whore. Does it, does it trouble you that I would refer to Jesus on the cross as a whore? You 
You see, Jesus on the cross took your idolatries, took your prostitutions, took your whoredom. He became sin. The most horrific, the most revolting in the sight of the Father, the most hideous, the most despicable, the most unclean. Jesus on the cross took all of my uncleanness, my adultery, my harlotry. He became the gomer. And so the wrath of God is turned away from them. That is, that is the Israel of God, the people of God, those whom he has loved with an everlasting love. And that anger and wrath was turned upon the Son. And the full measure of God's righteous wrath and judgment was visited upon him, the harlot, so that you might be completely clean. That's what God says in verse 4. I will heal their apostasy. I will heal it. I will love them freely and I will heal them and my anger will be turned away from them. How can you be healed? How can you be clean? How can you have peace? How can you get up in the morning and know that you're safe no matter what you did today or yesterday or last week or a hundred years ago? How can you get up on Monday morning and know that it is compassion and mercy and kindness and peace and forgiveness? Here's how you can know. Because it was wrath and judgment and justice visited upon Jesus as the gomer in your place upon the cross. Sometimes I wish I were Scottish. I think if I were Scottish, just being able to preach the way Scots preach, I'd get it better myself. And I say that because years ago I heard Eric Alexander preaching from Isaiah 53.10. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Eric Alexander, this great Scottish preacher, with tears in his eyes, saying at the cross of Jesus Christ, for all who trust in him, the wrath of God has been exhausted. And there is none left to be spent. What will it be? Apart from Christ, apart from Christ, there is the prospect of wrath. A righteous God has displayed the fact that he's serious about righteousness by visiting his wrath in righteousness upon his son in the place of sinners. He cares about what is just and what is righteous. And apart from Christ, there is wrath. But you see, in Christ, there is safety today, tomorrow, and forever because the wrath of God has been turned away from the Israel of God 
and visited upon Jesus the Gomer so that the Gomers may be Israelites and children of their Heavenly Father. Blessing has come through judgment and the cross. And so no matter what you do today, you can get up tomorrow and you can know that your husband will take you back. And he will take you back again and again and again and again because he loves you with an everlasting love. Let's pray. Father, you know that I have in mind especially those in this room with tender consciences. Those who need to know that there is peace between you and them. And so, oh God, I pray that you would take um, somehow take your wonderful gospel and these wonderful truths and reassure them. And Lord, for those of us who may be unmoved by these things, would you go with us as we leave this place? And in your grace and mercy and as another exhibition of your compassion and kindness, would you perhaps wake us up tomorrow to marvel at what we didn't marvel at today, to be stunned by what we weren't stunned by today, to rejoice in what we're not rejoicing in today. Oh God, for us all, would you put this new song of praise in our mouths, a praise song to you for your great grace. In Jesus, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.